you got your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 13 through 22 this morning. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that I gave a couple of reasons why we study through the Bible Sunday mornings, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Well, this morning we see another reason. You know, a lot of times when we read, especially the Gospels, and it's just kind of story after story after story, sometimes we just kind of look at those just kind of disconnected stories. But when we're reading through or studying through a book, what we see is that as the author wrote this, they did not just randomly choose these stories to throw in there. And while, while the stories might not be connected, maybe they've got different characters or they happen in different settings, a different part of the country or of the landscape. The thing that is being taught is, is what connects them. And so when we read through or study through a book like this, and we're going through verse by verse, what we see is these kind of themes that flow throughout different stories that otherwise aren't connected. So this morning, we're going to look at two different stories. One is as children come to Jesus and how Jesus interacts with them, and one with a, a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. And both stories are connected with how we uh, enter into the kingdom of God or how we respond to God uh, in our life as believers. And so the idea that we're going, kind of this common thread this morning is, is how do we, we enter into God's kingdom or how do we approach God or how do we come to God? If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then the way this, this message is applied to you is if you want to be saved, this is kind of the attitude that you come to Jesus with. For those who are believers, this is the attitude that we need to have as we walk with God, as we strive to obey Him and follow Him. And so this morning, uh, we're going to see these two different stories, but we're also going to see how they connect with this common theme. So what we'll do is we'll just kind of take each story one at a time. And so what we'll do is I'll read verses 13 through 16 right now, then we'll pray, uh, we'll kind of cover this, and then we'll read the second story. So let's just start verses 13 through 16 of Mark chapter 10, and then I'll pray. It says, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall never or shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now. We thank you for your word that it is living and active, God, that is sharper than a two-edged sword. Father God, that cuts down to our heart, God, to our soul, to the core of who we are. And Father God, I pray that in that this morning, Father God, for anyone in this room who does not know you as Lord and Savior yet, God, that would change this morning, God, that they would be captivated by your love and your grace and they would respond to that. Father God, I pray for those in this room who are believers, uh, Father God, that we would be reminded of... Um, the attitude that we need to have or the characteristics in our life as we approach you, God, to make sure that we are living lives of obedience and living lives, God, that glorify and magnify you. Uh, we love you. We thank you. I pray that you would speak louder through your word and your Holy Spirit, God, than my feeble voice ever could. It's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. All right, the first thing that we see in this passage in verses 13 through 16 is that we enter God's kingdom humbly and dependently. Now, 
Verses 13 and 14 kind of set the stage for verse 15. They're kind of setting the context. They're kind of setting our our, our picture for kind of the main teaching point that comes in at verse 15. So in verses 13 and 14, we're going to look at them because they set the stage, but we're also going to chase a little bit of a rabbit, then we'll get right back on the path uh, of where we're going this morning. But verses 13 and 14 give us two different ways that Jesus and the culture uh, interact with these children. We're going to see two different views. We're going to see how the culture views children through the disciples, and we're going to see how Jesus views children. Then we're going to walk away with uh, something to learn from that. Then we're going to get back on the path of of looking at how we enter in the kingdom of God. So verse 13 and 14, or verse 13 says this, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. So this is going to be the cultural view of children. If you remember a couple weeks ago when we talked about uh, just previously, there was a, a, a passage in chapter 9 where uh, children were being brought to Jesus. And um, there's this cultural view at this time that children were seen as at least socially kind of less than. Uh, they weren't... Uh, seen as important as adults. Uh, They were kind of pushed down outside of parents and maybe immediate family. Uh, People just did not want uh, to have to worry about children. Kind of the whole children should be seen and not heard. Uh, They had no rights. They weren't viewed as as important. They couldn't offer society anything. And so people didn't invest much in children outside of the family. Uh, And maybe the the, the church in teaching them some things. But but culturally and socially, children were, were about on the same level of slaves when it came to their their positioning in society. And what we see is the disciples kind of accept this this ideology, or they accept this kind of cultural view on children. As as parents are bringing their children to Jesus, uh, what would happen in this time is is parents would bring their kids anywhere from birth to 12 years old, bring their kids to a rabbi or a teacher, for that teacher to bless them, to kind of pray a prayer over them or, or say a blessing on them and on their lives. And so you have these parents bringing their children up to Jesus, who at this time is is seen as the greatest greatest rabbi. He's traveling around. He's teaching. People are marveling at the things that he's saying. They're marveling at the things that he's doing. And so these people are bringing their children up, wanting this special teacher to to bless their child. And the disciples are basically saying, look, he's not got time for this. He's too busy. Your children are not important enough to bother Jesus and to take up his time. So get them out of here. So this is Jesus' response, or Jesus' view of children. Verse 14 says, But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for for to such belongs the kingdom of God. This word indignant is a very intense emotional word, meaning that he was angry and upset at how the disciples were treating these parents. He was angry and upset at how the, the, uh, the disciples were treating these children. And he says, do not send them away. Let them come to me. For to such belong the kingdom of God. So there's a few things that we see here. One, the kingdom of God or salvation is not just for adults. That children are are, are capable of embracing and understanding the gospel and understanding salvation. Now, surely there comes an age where they can actually grasp that and understand that, but 
But we don't have to wait till someone's a teenager, an adult, that we can invest in them and, and hope to see them come to faith, even at a young age. Uh, that's one of the things that we do in VBS. Vacation Bible School is one of the largest outreaches that churches in America do. As we have kids come in from all over uh, our community, uh, they hear the gospel, and we pray and we hope <coughs> excuse me, to see them saved. Also, Jesus is saying that, that He loves and cares for these kids. And as He is willing to invest in them, as He's willing to spend His time with them, we should as well. And then there's one other thing that I want to see, because what we have here are two clashing views, two clashing uh, ideologies. You have this cultural view of children, that, that children are unimportant, children are, are second or third class citizens, children have no value until they get older and they can add to society through their ability to work. And then you've got Jesus, Jesus who says, the youngest of these children I love, I want to bless, I want to invest my time in. And you have these two different views, what culture says and what Jesus says. Now in our world today, there are different areas in our life, whether it's morality, whether it's ethically, whether it's religiously, whatever it is, that our culture says one thing and Jesus says something else. Or the Bible says something else. God's Word commands us something else. And so when culture and Jesus clash, Jesus should win every time. When there is an issue in our life, and maybe our world says one thing and the Bible says something else. Christians are commanded in those situations to live counter-culturally. What that means is we live different. We live opposite than the world around us. That's why, why Peter calls us strangers and aliens, that this is not our home, that we are, are basically immigrants in this world because our home is in heaven. Our king sits in the throne of heaven. That is where our home is, and we are on a journey to get back home. And while we are here, we are strangers and aliens. And that means we follow the commands, the leadership of our king. And while we are on this world, when our culture says something different, when our culture says sex is just for fun, when our culture says that, that, that gender and, and sexuality is fluid and it doesn't matter, when our culture says step on people to get what you want, when our culture says money is the most important thing or power is the most important thing or authority and control is the most important thing, when our culture says one thing and God God's word says something else, then we strive to be countercultural and follow God's word. Follow God's standard and follow God's commandment. With these disciples and the children, the culture said one thing and Jesus said something else. Every day we encounter a culture that says one thing and God's word says something else on a multitude of subjects, and we have to decide which one are we going to follow. In our relationships, in our friendships, in, in our businesses, in our personal life, in our thought life, in our actions, in our motivations, do we let the culture shape who we are and what we believe and how we act, or do we allow God and His Word to shape who we are, how we believe, and how we act? All right, that was our rabbit trail. Now we're going to get back on the, on the path. Verse 15, we see that we enter God's kingdom and receive eternal life with childlike faith. So in verse 15, well, verse 15 and 16, it says this, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. 
Now, Jesus uses this time to, to, to make this a teaching point and use these children as a teaching point. He talks about receiving the kingdom and, and entering into it. And the great thing about the kingdom of God is, is when we talk about the kingdom of God, when we talk about salvation, we receive it while we're on earth. What that means is we, we place our faith and trust in Jesus. We believe the things that the Bible says about Jesus. We, we place our hope in Him for salvation. We receive it. And then once we die in this, on this world and we enter into eternity, that's when we brace hold of it. That's when we enter it. That's when we see it come to life. And so in that middle spot, we are living by faith. And so Jesus says that anyone who does not come like this child or like these children shall not receive and enter into the kingdom of God. So that raises the question, what does it mean to receive this like a child? What does it mean to receive salvation, to receive the kingdom of God, or receive the gospel like a child? Three things I got for us. One, we enter believing the basics. What this means is, is, is children have a, a, a limited knowledge. And that's not to, to, to say anything bad about children, but as you're a child, you have a limited knowledge. And then as you grow up and as you mature, as you gain an age, you gain a knowledge, you study more, you become smarter. Well, as, when it comes to coming to Jesus, we don't have to be theologians. You don't have to have any single Bible verse remembered or memorized. You don't have to know the books of the Bible and the order that they're in. You don't have to know all the stories. To come to Jesus for salvation, all you have to know is that God loves you. He loved you enough to send His Son to die for you. He died for us because we are sinners and we are guilty and we need to be forgiven by our sins by Jesus Christ. And we do so by placing our faith and trust in Him as our Lord and Savior. That is how we enter the gospel. Not by being able to know everything. Not by being able to quote a million scriptures. Not by being in church for 50 years. We come to know Jesus Christ through the basics of the gospel. The very basics and foundations of what Christianity is built on. The fact that we are so sinful and so separated from a perfect holy God that He had to love us enough to send His Son to die on the cross for us to rise three days later so that we might have life and that we might be forgiven and adopted into his family. That's all you have to know to become a Christian. To share the gospel with someone, that's all you have to know or the basics. You don't have to have every question figured out. You don't have to be this, this theologian that, can, uh, that sits around for eight hours a day and just dwells on the deep things of God or the deep things of the Bible. All you have to know are the basics. Secondly, we enter trusting who Jesus is and what Jesus did. As you come to God for the sake of salvation, of entering into the kingdom, you come with this dependent trust. Trusting that, that who Jesus has said that He is and what Jesus had said He's going to do, that He will fulfill that. That you come trusting Him as a child, knowing that what He has promised, He will fulfill. You come without doubt. You come without cynicism. You come without questioning and you say, Jesus has said that He is God. Jesus has said this is who He is. Jesus has said that He has died so that we could have life. These are the things that Jesus has said about Himself. I'm going to trust Him with my life life. I'm going to lay my eternity in his hands. I'm going to ask him to forgive me and confess him as my king and live a life of obedience because of who he is and what he has done for me. My kids, if I tell them I'm going to do something, they trust me. They don't question me. Now, sometimes I fall through. I'm, 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 not, I'm not perfect. And sadly, sometimes I don't, I don't keep all the things that I tell them I'm going to do. I try my hardest. 
but they trust me regardless. How much more, well, a perfect God who keeps all of His promises perfectly, we should come in with that childlike faith, or as a child, trusting, dependent on Him, understanding how much we need Him. Dependent on His power. Dependent on His grace. Dependent on His work. Dependent on His love. Dependent on, on what He has done for us. And that leads us to our third. We understand that we have no ability to earn it on our own. We understand that as God offers us this gift, this gift of salvation that He offers us through His Son, that we cannot earn it. That we do not have to earn it, but not only do we not have to earn it, but but it is impossible for us to earn God's love. It is impossible for us to earn God's grace. It is impossible for us to earn God's forgiveness. And how is this like a child? If I give my kids a gift, if I give them a toy, if I give them some ice cream, if I give them whatever it is that they want, Abigail does not stop and say, hey, Dad, thank you, but, but first let me go get some money out of my piggy bank so I can help pay for this. She doesn't say, hey, Dad, uh, thanks, but let me go do some chores so that I can kind of meet you halfway on this. No, she jumps up and down and she gets giggly and excited because her father who loves her or her parents who love her are giving her a gift because they love her. So she accepts it wholeheartedly without trying to earn it, without trying to to try to get something. She just takes it because it comes from the father who loves her. In the same way with salvation, we don't go to God and say, all right, God, I understand that what you've done through Jesus. Now let me, let me do so much to kind of get myself to a certain level. Let me kind of clean myself up to a certain point. Or let me kind of, kind of um, start living better, and then I'll accept you. We'll kind of meet halfway. There is no meeting halfway when it comes to God. There is no meeting halfway when it comes to us in a relationship with Him. Look. Jesus or God is way up here. God is past the ceiling and we're on the the, the bottom of my boot. There's no way for us to climb up to perfection from where we are at. So perfection came down and he offers us a free gift through his son and what his son has done. And we do nothing to earn it. We just trust Him. We believe Him and we place our faith and trust in Him. This is not a a meet God halfway scenario. This is not, okay, God, you do this and then I'm going to do all this stuff to kind kind of pay you back. We wholly and freely and graciously and gladly accept the gift that God gives us knowing that there is nothing we could do to earn it from Him. When Jesus' first sermon in the book of Matthew, it's the, the Beatitudes, it's the Sermon on the Mount, he starts with the Beatitudes. And the first Beatitude is, blessed are the poor in spirit. That poor in spirit is, is being recognizing yourself as a, a, a spiritual beggar who has absolutely nothing, crying out for the, 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 the help of someone else because if someone doesn't help you, if someone doesn't toss a coin or a dollar your way, then you will be dead. It is absolute destitution. And so we cry out to God with that same heart, that same attitude, that same poverty in spirit, saying, God, without you, I've got nothing. And so we come to God knowing that we cannot earn it. That's what that childlike faith looks like. Not only does that childlike faith look like that when it comes to salvation, but it's also how we live. As believers, we live continually trusting God with that same dependence, saying, God, I am desperately in need of you every step of every day. 
If I'm going to walk in obedience, if I'm going to love you, if I'm going to stand against temptation, then God, I need you. I am dependent on you. God, I understand that my standing before you is not based on what I do, that I cannot earn favor from you. But my standing before you, the fact that you look at me and you can love me and you don't see my sin anymore, it's not because of how good I do now that I'm saved. It's still because of what Jesus Christ did for me. The things that we stand on at the point of salvation, we stand on whether you've been a Christian for five years or 10 years or 50 years or 70 years. The same truth and it does not stand. So that's our first story. We see this. This is how we come into the kingdom. Now, in our second story, we kind of see the the opposite of this. As these children came and God or Jesus Christ blessed them and said, let them come. Now we have another man coming to Jesus. So let's read verses 17, excuse me, verses 17 through 22. It says, and, he was set, and as he was setting out on his journey, so they're getting up, they're leaving. They've, they've started the journey to head to another spot. It says, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What we're going to see here in this story is that self-righteousness keeps us from God's kingdom. Self-righteousness is the thinking that we can be good enough or moral enough or follow enough rules uh, to earn something from God. And let me, let me just say this, self-righteousness can keep us from salvation. If we think that, hey, I'm good enough, I don't need someone else to save me, I'm not that bad of a person, uh, my good outweighs my bad, so I'm okay. Yes, that can keep us from entering in the kingdom, but also that same mentality as believers can keep us from daily depending on God. It can keep us from trusting God if we think that we are somehow morally... Um, superior or morally okay or morally good enough that we do not need God on a day-to-day basis. Self-righteousness does not just impact um, people before they come to Christ, but it also can impact and influence us um, as believers. In fact, in the Gospels, the people that Jesus interacted with the most that He had to call out on their self-righteousness, it was not the The women caught in adultery, it was not the prostitutes, it was not the tax collectors, it was the Pharisees. Now there's a difference in Pharisees and Christians, hopefully. Pharisees did not have a relationship with God. Pharisees based everything they had on their abilities and on their self-righteousness. But as Christians, as those who, who because we follow God, we do, our lives should look different in our morality and in our character and in our integrity. But self-righteousness looks at other people and says, you know what, because of my morality, because of my integrity, I am better than those who don't have that. I'm somehow higher than those that don't have that. And that's self-righteousness. And that, that comes from pride, and it, and it breeds pride, and it does not glorify God. 
And so what we're going to see in this young man's life is this self-righteousness that ultimately keeps him from turning to Jesus. So verse 17, Jesus has asked the most important question one can ask. So as he was setting out his journey, the man um, comes before him and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Basically, what can I do to enter into the kingdom? What can I do to be saved? He asked Jesus the most important question somebody can ask is what do I do so that once this life ends, my eternity is settled? What do I do so that once this life ends, I'm not under judgment for eternity for my sins, but I'm living with God forever for eternity in joy and in grace and perfection? Now, a couple of things that we know about this young man. When we take all three of the synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are the ones that kind of follow the same outline, that tell a lot of the same stories. All three of us tell us that he was rich. The end of the story tells us that he left because he had much money, that he was a rich man. Matthew tells us that he was a young man. In Matthew's story, Matthew throws in that, that, that he was a young man. And Luke tells us that he was a ruler. What that means is that not that he was a, a king or a prince, but that within the Sanhedrin, he was kind of high up. Maybe he wasn't a Pharisee yet, but he was kind of rising through the ranks as a young man, rising through the ranks of being kind of one of the religious elite, kind of one of those uh, religious leaders in the land. And this young man comes to Jesus and asks the most important question that can ever be asked. Now for us in this room, the most important question that we can ever ask is what must I do to be saved? If you're in this room and you have asked that, and you have responded with God in faith, and praise God. But if you're in this room, maybe you've never asked that. Maybe you've asked it and you just haven't come uh, to the answer yet. The answer is the things that we've been looking at all morning. How do you receive eternal life? How do you enter into the kingdom of God? How are you saved? It's by trusting in Jesus Christ. It's by trusting in who He is and what He has done for us. And not only do we need to, to, to ask that question and make sure that we have answered it properly, but as believers, God has placed a call on our lives that we are going out and asking other people that question. Now, we don't ask them, how do you receive eternal life? Uh, or maybe that is how you want to ask it. But, but we, we, we approach people with this question, hoping that it will be... They will understand their need for a Savior. Do you want to know how to receive eternal life? How do you accept eternal life? What does it mean for you to be saved? What happens to you after you die? Whatever we can ask to to, to move into a conversation where we can talk about the gospel, that's part of the call that God has placed on our life as believers. Because without a proper response to this question, which is Jesus placing your faith and trust in Him, without a proper response to this question... All we have is judgment and punishment and hell. That's all that we have apart from Jesus Christ. And so not only do we need to accept that, yes, it's a great thing that I can can say with confidence that I've asked that question and I've responded by placing my faith and trust in Jesus by the grace of God. But how sad and selfish of a thing if I don't approach anybody else with that same question and people who I have contact with, people who I have relationships with, die and spend eternity separated from the love and grace of God under the wrath and punishment of God. And maybe part of the reason is because I never talked to them about the gospel. I never shared with them the gospel. I never helped them answer that question in the only way that has meaning, which is Jesus Christ. 
So Jesus asked the most important question one can ask. Next, we see in verse 18 that to enter God's kingdom, we must acknowledge who Jesus is. Verse 18, Jesus responds to the man. He says, and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So the man, when he came up to Jesus and he fell before him, he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, In this context, remember, Jesus was the teacher, the rabbi. He was walking around. This is a religious society. The idea of good here is is morally good. And not just morally good, but kind of morally uh, perfection. You're you're kind of the the, the top notch, the highest of the high. So he comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher. And Jesus kind of stops a second before he moves on. And he's making a point to the young man. He's wanting the young man to think about something. He's wanting the young man to process and to, and to work through and to, to, to see what he understands about Jesus. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now in this, Jesus is not denying his deity. He is not saying that he is not God. In fact, it's just the opposite. He's wanting the young man to associate Jesus and, or, or God and the goodness of God with Jesus. He's wanting the young man to think about and to acknowledge the fact that, yes, you can call him good because he is God. And as you come to Jesus Christ, we have to to understand that Jesus is who He says He is. That Jesus is God. That Jesus is part of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus is the Son of that one God and three distinct persons. And we have to acknowledge Jesus as God because if He is not God, then He is not capable of saving us. And as this young man comes and he says, Good teacher, how can I be saved? Jesus is saying, do you understand? Do you truly grasp? Do you truly believe that I'm not just a teacher out here? I'm not just a good rabbi. I'm not just a super smart guy, but I truly am God. That if yes, if you're wanting to find salvation, I'm where you find it. Not because that I'm just a good teacher or a great moral man, but because I am God in the flesh. It is imperative that we understand who Jesus is. Jesus was not just uh, the first created thing that God ever made. Jesus was not just uh, this being that was higher than the angels. Jesus is God. And it is imperative for us to believe that. Look, the reason why we don't consider Mormons or Jehovah's Witness Christians is because they deny that Jesus is God. They say that He is not God. Now, we've looked at this before on a Sunday night as we've looked at some kind of theological truths, but when you begin to deny the Trinity, then the whole idea of salvation falls apart. If Jesus is not God, then He does not have the perfection or the power or the authority to satisfy God's wrath for our sins. We have to believe that the Bible or that as what the Bible says about Jesus is true. And the Bible says that Jesus is God. Jesus told the, the Jews as they were arguing about something, He said, before Abraham was, I am. He was calling Himself God. He was using the statement that God told to Moses, when you go to the, Egypt, when you go to the Israelites who are in Egypt, and they say, who sent you? Tell them, I am sent you. Jesus said that. And the, the Jews were so mad that they wanted to stone Him to death for blasphemy because He claimed to be God. The Bible is clear that Jesus is not just a moral man or a great teacher, but he, excuse me, he 
is God. And as this young man comes to Jesus, Jesus is making this point of, do you understand who you're talking to? Do you fully comprehend who I am? Because if you're wanting to move forward in this relationship, you've got to acknowledge that I'm not just a teacher, but I am the good God. I am God. I am perfection. And this is important as we move on because what we're about to see is self-righteousness. Well, let me just give you the blank. Self-righteousness exalts our perspective uh, of our morality. Self-righteousness exalts the, pers- the perspective of our morality. And what that means is, is, is Jesus is saying that He is good, that He is perfection, that He is God. He's about to, to take a next step in dealing with this man and really trying to help this man to understand why he needs salvation, why he needs Jesus, why he needs, uh, why he needs one who is better than him, one who is good. So verse 19, Jesus said to him, he said, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. Now, the Ten Commandments are kind of split up into to, to two different groupings. You've got these six that he just mentioned, uh, which are more kind of the, the moral aspects of the Ten Commandments. These kind of influence and impact our relationship with each other. But then you've also got the commandments that come before these that, that impact our relationship with God. Now, I don't have my phone with me to look at them, um, but I think I can get them. Uh, it's... Um, uh, don't have any other gods before God. I don't have any idols. Uh, keep the Sabbath and don't take the Lord's name in vain. So you've got these that deal specifically with your relationship with God. And then you've got these six right here that kind of deal with your morality, kind of how you live out your faith. And so Jesus doesn't even mention the ones dealing with God. He just mentions these, kind of the more, uh, I don't know, not, not basic ones, but, but maybe some of the ones that you can kind of see more visually in how you're keeping them. And so he lifts them out. No murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. That, what he's doing there is he's just, that's the, the, the coveting one. Uh, do not covet. He's, it's the same thing. Uh, and honor your father and mother. So he lays these out and says, look, here's just six of the ten. And the young man responds with this. He says, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. Jesus kind of lays out this kind of standard of morality. And this guy says, look, I've done all that. I'm good. I'm I'm a good person. I've I've kept every single one of those rules. I have not broken a single one of them. Ever since I was a kid, ever since I've learned them, I've kept them perfectly. I have not messed up. I'm not a bad person. And what we see here is this, this self-righteousness is exalting the way he views his, his perception of morality. It's exalting how he views his understanding of his own goodness. And instead of seeing him as someone who is not as good as the Father, who is not as good as 
Jesus, who is not perfect, he looks at himself and says, I am a really good person. I keep all the rules. I do all the good stuff. I don't do anything bad. I am a really good person. And this self-righteousness kind of bubbles up and it blinds him to his own immorality. It blinds him to his own sinfulness. It blinds him to his own need for Jesus. Look, I grew up in church, and I grew up a very moral kid. But I did not keep the Ten Commandments perfectly. And even if I had kept these six commandments perfectly, the commandments between me and God would still have been off. And the point that Jesus is doing when, while He does just these kind of the moral commandments rather than, than the ones that deal with God, is He wants Him to see, look, before we even get to those, here on these six, you've broken these, and the guy completely misses it because... Because of his self-righteousness, because he views himself so morally good that he does not see his need for a Savior. Look, no one likes it when you talk about sin. It's not fun. It doesn't make us feel great. It doesn't make us feel super good. But we have to discuss sin as believers. One, because God commands us to. Uh, as believers, because we've got to deal with our sin <clears throat> as we walk with God. But also, if we don't understand our sinfulness, then why in the world would we need a Savior? If we don't understand that we are sinners bound for hell justly because of what we've done, then why would we need to trust someone else? Why would we need to lay our life at His feet? Why would we need to confess Him as King? So Jesus is trying to move this young man to understand that he is a sinner in need of a Savior. But his self-righteousness exalts his own morality to where he views himself even above failure and above needing a Savior. Now, once again, if you're in this room, if you've not placed your faith and trust in Jesus, then the way we apply this to your life is that you have to understand that because of any human being, even me before I became a Christian, because I had lied, or I had thoughts that I shouldn't have had, or actions that I shouldn't have committed, or motivations that I shouldn't have had, I was a sinner. From a child, I had sinned and broken God's commandment. And because of my sin, what I deserve was God's judgment. And I had to acknowledge as I came to God, as I came to Jesus Christ, I had to acknowledge my sinfulness. I had to acknowledge that I was a sinner who desperately needed a Savior. And if you're in this room, if you not place your faith and trust in Jesus yet, that is one of the first steps of, of, of moving towards salvation is saying, I am a sinner needing salvation. If you're in a room, in this room, and you are a believer, then day in and day out, we have to keep this same attitude of acknowledging to God, God, I am a sinner. God, I understand because of my sinfulness, I'm going to face temptation. The second that I get up from my bed, the second my eyes open, the second my mind starts working, I'm going to face temptation and I need your help. I need your strength because if I begin to think that I'm so much better or so morally superior, then one, I'm not going to depend on you and two, I'm not going to love other people the way that I should. So God, I need your help to make sure that I'm not self-righteous, that I'm I'm not some kind of morally superior person, but I'm daily reminding myself that I am desperately in need of God and of Jesus day in, day out for His love, for His help, for His strength, and for His grace. 
And finally, what we see with this young man's life is that self-righteousness blinds us to our idolatry. Verses 21 and 22 says this, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, two things that I want us to really quickly point, to, point out here. One, Jesus, knowing the young man's heart, knowing his struggles, still looked at him and loved him. Jesus did not look at him and say, you know what? You've messed up. Uh, you're not going to get this question right. Uh, I want nothing to do with you. He still had compassion for him. He still had grace for him. He still wanted to, the young man to make the right decision, even though he chose not to. And in the same way as we deal with people who do not know Jesus, and we share with them God's love, and we invite them to church, They might respond in a way that we don't want them to, or maybe in a way that's offensive to us, but we need to strive to have that heart of Jesus that says, you know what? I'm still going to love you because I understand that where you're at and is not the place to be. But also with this young man, it says that he walked away because he had great wealth. We don't take this passage and say that Christians should give away all of our money, or that money is evil, that money is bad. Jesus does this because, once again, he knows the man's heart. And he's wanting the the young man to to lay down the thing that is the most important to him so that Jesus Christ can become most important to him. So lay down what is on the throne of his life so that he can replace that with God, with a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But his self-righteousness is blinding him from his idolatry. The fact that this young man has taken money, that he has taken wealth, and he has said, this is the most important thing in my life. This is what's going to bring me happiness. This is what's going to bring me satisfaction. This is what's going to bring me hope and purpose. And he has exalted his finances. He has exalted his wealth to be the most important, defining thing about him. It was his God. Jesus says, if you want to find salvation, you've got to replace that God for a new God. You've got to replace the God of money For the God of creation. And the young man could not do it. He loved his money more than he loved the idea of God. More than he loved the idea of salvation. More than the idea of eternal life. He loved his money because that was his God. Self-righteousness can blind us to our idolatry. I'm going to speak specifically to the Christians here in this room. We are not spared the temptation of creating idols in our life. There's a, an old theologian named Augustine who said that the, the heart is a factory for making idols. And we are so prone to make really anything an idol. A person, power, comfort, entertainment, whatever. There is anything in our life we can rise up and say, you know what? This is what's going to make me happy. This is what's going to, I'm going to find my joy. This is what I cannot lose regardless. And if it is anything other than God, then we have created an idol. Then we have lifted something else up to the position that God deserves and that God belongs at. We have removed God from the throne of our life and we have placed something else there. As Christians, we have to be aware every single day that we are keeping God on the throne of our life and that we are not exalting or lifting something else up to take that spot. That God is our God and nothing else. That God is our King. That He is the one who leads us. He is the one that rules us. He is the one who loves us. And so He is the one that we follow.
Because if we're not careful, we will allow something else to take superiority, to take that ultimate spot of affection and love and desire in our life other than God. So in this, we see this contrasting two different stories. Now once again, if we're just jumping around, we might miss this. But as we read through the book, we see Jesus take these children and say, this is how you enter the kingdom of God. Dependently, trustingly, not trying to earn it as a child would. And here's how you don't. With self-righteousness, the exact opposite. Thinking that you can earn it. Thinking that you're good enough. Thinking that you can somehow um, create the scenario where God owes you something. And these contrasting stories show us what it means to, to move into the kingdom of God, to trust God, and to walk with God. So my question for us this morning. One, is that young man asked that greatest question that he failed to answer correctly. What must I do to inherit eternal life? If you're in this room hearing my voice, are you sure that there has been a time in your life when you've repented of your sins and placed your faith and trust in Jesus? Can you answer that question correctly? If not, God offers grace. The Bible tells us that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That can be this morning. Regardless your past, regardless your history, regardless your sinfulness, God is big enough to forgive if we turn to Him in faith asking for salvation, asking for forgiveness. You can do that this morning. We'll have a time of response here in a second. And I'll be standing up front and you can come and talk to me and we can work through that. If you're in this room and you know that you are a believer... What I want us to do during this time of response, before we sing, or while Deborah sings, before you start to sing, I want you to spend some time praying and asking God, God, are there any idols in my life? God, what are the things that are prone to become idols in my life that I need to be on guard against? So that when we leave this morning, we have all dealt with God so that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt through confession, through repentance, through, uh, through just dealing with God that He alone is on the throne of our hearts. Because if we want to make an impact in the world around us and if we want to live a life that glorifies and worships Him, He has to be on that throne. Let's pray. Father God, we come before You now. We thank You for this time. We thank You for Your Word, God. We thank You for the grace that You have offered us through salvation. Father God, I pray right now, Lord, that as we um, have this time of response, this time of invitation, God, I pray for anyone in here who does not know You, that that would change this morning. God, I pray for those who do know You, Father God, that, that we would make sure that our hearts are set and focused on You. Father God, that we have nothing else sitting as the King of our life, but You and You alone come first. Father God, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.